0: Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ardith, for the music ministry this morning. Anyone who wants to take part in the music ministry, every week we try to have some sort of special music. Uh, And we are not professionals, but we all enjoy glorifying God through what we can do. So if you want to be part of the rotation, you can see my sister, Beth, and she will get you in the next three-month rotation. We're slowly working our way through 1 Corinthians, We started at the beginning of the year, and now we've finally gotten to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and today we'll be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Uh, I, I assume that no one in here has heard the name Stovall Weems. Anyone know the name Stovall Weems? I would probably guarantee you probably have not heard Stovall Weems, but if you were a member of Celebration Church in Tennessee, you would know him very well because uh, he, it was proven that he misused church finances. So the church forced him to resign back in April, and he got a bee up his bonnet and decided, I don't like that, and so he sued Celebration Church for defamation, and that is still going through the court process. Shocking, shocking, shocking. But if you do a simple Google search, just a simple Google search, on pastors suing their churches, you will find that that happens a lot. Pastors just decide, I'm going to sue the church for defamation. I'm not planning on doing that. But unfortunately it happens a lot. What happens is there's an allegation uh, for maybe sexual abuse, financial misdealing, something like that, uh, and they approach the pastor, say, hey, this is what we see, this is all the evidence that's piled against you. Will you repent or will you step down? And the pastor says, I'm gonna pick C, I'll sue you instead. And it happens a lot, it breaks my heart. What adds to my heart breaking is not just the amount of pastors, if you do a Google search, that are suing their churches, but members of the congregation are suing each other too. Christians right and left are bringing each other to court. Something bad happens and the immediate response is, let's go to court. And should that be? No, oh, thank you for everyone. I don't have to say, preach the rest of this message. Let's all go home. Paul says, no. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What the Corinthians were ha- was happening to them never stopped. It's been going on in church after church after church. And we'll see for specific reasons as we study this passage why that sort of thing is happening. But the, Paul looks at the Corinthians and says, you are suing each other. You're bringing each other to court. That's wrong. So Paul holds up two mirrors to the Corinthians to help them change. The first mirror shows them who they are in their sin, and the second mirror shows them who they are in Christ. And based on who they are in their sin and who they are in Christ, Paul tells them how they are then to live in this situation. Let's read the passage: First Corinthians chapter six, verses one to eleven. First Corinthians six one to eleven. Paul says, "If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people?" Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers?' But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, No men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Two mirrors. Who they are in their sin, who they are in Christ. This week we're going to look at the first mirror. Next week we're going to look at the second mirror. Before we dive in, will you pray with me? Father, Thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are the divine judge who knows what is right and what is wrong completely. And there is no fault in you, neither do you make any bad judgment. Thank you that you, in your justice and your righteousness, you shall also show mercy. Because without your mercy, we would not be able to stand here today. We are grateful that the mercy that you give through Jesus Christ, that we might know you, be completely known by you, and to know you in return it is truly an awesome, awesome thing. Lord, today as we study your word, I ask that we would understand it and that we would have the strength to live by it. Teach us what you want us to know, Lord. And as I'm up here, Father, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So, do you know what the purpose of a mirror is? Reflect yourself. Thank you, Jacoby. If you go up to Wikipedia, which is the foremost of all knowledge in this world, Thank you for laughing at that. You will read that it says, a mirror reflects light waves to the observer, preserving the waves' curvature and divergence to form an image when focused through the lens of the eye. Did anyone understand what I just said? Neither did I. Couple people. Do you feel a little nerdy now? I um, (laughs) am. What Wikipedia says is nice. But it doesn't tell us the purpose of a mirror, it just says how a mirror works. The purpose of the mirror is that you can see what you look like and see where you need to change. Every Sunday morning, that's the morning I dedicate to look in the mirror. And I see myself for a hairy, shaggy dog, and I bring out my beard trimmer, and I trim my beard so I look presentable. I don't touch my beard the rest of the week. One Sunday. One Sunday. Once a week, once a week. Someday, maybe I won't touch it ever. I'll follow the path of my (laughs) father-in-law. The purpose of the mirror is to see what you look like and see where you need to change. Paul holds up to the mirror to the Corinthians and to us showing what we look like and showing where we need to change. First off, we're going to look at what we look like. What do we look like? And if you do not want to know, you can walk out the door and there'll be no judgment. But if you stay for the next five seconds, you are stuck to your seat and you must know what we look like. What do we look like in our sin? Paul says that we look like sinners. First off, Paul says that we look like sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8, he says, instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. It is the human condition for us as humans to sin it is the human condition when left naturally to ourselves and our own devices that we will hurt each other most of the time we hurt each other unintentionally it's just who we are we hurt each other and we do it without thinking about it sometimes we do it intentionally with a lot of thought behind it either way we are sinners and we hurt each other in Corinth someone was hurt by someone else. There's a dispute, there's someone cheated someone, something worthy of going to what would we would consider a small claims court in today's society. Uh, and so and they brought that person to the smallest claims court and it just hap- didn't happen once, it happened over and over and over again, all throughout that congregation, people cheating each other and then bringing each other to the small claims court. Now I'm not so naive as to think that that does not happen here in America people in churches we already talked about people suing each other right and left in churches throughout the united states i'm not so naive to think now i don't expect anyone here to sue each other because we are level-headed perfect people but we as humans though we would not sue each other we in calvary bible church hurt each other a lot if you flip, flip through the history Of Calvary Bible Church. I have the congregational minutes in my office and from time to time I just flip through them and read them. The minutes reveal some fascinating stuff that in the history of this church people were pretty mean to each other. And in fact one pastor resigned because in his resignation letter he said that he is not equipped to lead this church in being nice to each other. It was just too much for him and so he left we as Christians hurt each other. We would not naturally defraud each other as the people in Corinth do, but we might unintentionally steal from each other, possibly, as someone loans us something and we don't return it. I have here four DVDs, four groups of DVDs that have been loaned to me over the past six years. Uh, And and I was going through our DVD pile, and I found them, and I realized they're not mine. So I have unintentionally stolen from someone else. I know who they belong to, so I'm going to give them back to you today. But we as humans, we naturally do stuff because of our forgetfulness, because of our sin and depravity. It happens. We might say something that hurts someone else unintentionally or sometimes intentionally hurting them because we really want them to feel the hurt that we felt. Perhaps we want to speak truth to someone else. We know the Bible says something, and, and they're doing something that is against how we, we view the Bible. But in telling them that truth, we forget gentleness. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, where he says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. Sometimes we in our zeal to bring truth forget the gentleness and thereby hurt and sin against a brother and sister in Christ. Maybe we hear something about someone else and we pass that tidbit along to another person engaging in gossip and thereby slandering someone because we didn't know whether that tidbit was true or not. Either way, gossip and slander, both sin, both hurtful. However you want to put it, we as humans are sinners. We will and do hurt each other. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul holds up the mirror and we look in the mirror and we say that we are sinners. Not only do we see that we are sinners, but we see that we're steeped in unforgiveness. We're steeped in unforgiveness. The Corinthian man has been hurt. Something happens, and he wants to be justified. He wants to feel right. He wants whatever's coming to that other guy to come. So he brings that fellow to court, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, If any of you have a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? This man is so entrenched in his selfishness that he wants the person who hurt him to feel hurt as much as he felt hurt because it's all about him in his mind. Now, I know this is only human. We as humans, when we, when we are hurt, we want to feel hurt. That's why we lash out. That's why we bring retribution. That's why we, there's vengeance and revenge and all these sorts of things because we have felt hurt. We want someone else to feel hurt. Is that right? Some people might say, well, it's not about that. It's about the person who who has hurt me. They've done something wrong and justice shouldn't come. The guy needs to be held accountable. And yes, that is true. Accountability has to happen. People need to pay for their actions. That's coming. What we're talking about right now is not about the other guy. It's about us, about forgiveness. Think about what it means to be a Christian, We believe that we are sinners, that we have eternally hurt our Creator and our God by our actions. We believe that our actions deserve an eternity in the lake of fire, doomed to be forever separated from all the blessings that come from the nearness, care, and protection of God. That is who we are, and that is what we are destined for. And that is just. God would have been completely right and just to condemn us to our fate without any other thought. Just snuff us out, right, here and now, because of our sin. In all honesty, if we were God, that's what we would do. If I was God, most of the people who I have interacted with in life would be gone from the face of earth because of what they've done against me. And I know many of you have felt the same way. You've talked to me the same way. But God forgave us. He looked at our sin, all the ways that we have personally hurt him, and he sent his son to die for us, taking all that punishment, all that debt that we owed God on Christ and allowing us to walk scot-free. Not only that, not only through Christ do we walk scot-free, but we are guaranteed an eternity in God's presence the one we hurt. And we don't have to do anything to earn this gift. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to walk barefoot on hot coals. We don't have to do anything. All we have to do is accept the gift and rest in the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The God we hurt did everything so that we could live forever in his presence. That is grace. That is mercy. That is what God did for us. So why are we not willing to do that for each other? If we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, paying the penalty for our sin, so that the God, the holy God, cannot hold that sin against us, why do we refuse to believe that Jesus Christ died for the person who hurt us, died for the sin that hurt us, so that the Holy God doesn't hurt, hold that sin against him, therefore we shouldn't hold it against him either. Who are we to hold someone to a higher standard and a higher punishment than the Holy God himself? Paul said in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness does not mean we allow someone to trample over us and allow them to sin over and over and over again. Forgiveness means that we release the person who has hurt us from the debt they owe us. A Christian looks at a fellow Christian and says, I acknowledge that what you did was wrong. I acknowledge that what you did deserves God's judgment completely. It was bad. But I realize that that judgment that it deserves fell on Jesus Christ. He willingly paid the price for that action. Therefore, I cannot hold this wrong against you. I cannot pay, make you pay a debt that has already been paid. Is that easy to do? No, it's not. Which is why the Corinthians weren't doing it to each other. Which is why when the rubber meets the road, so many of us do not show this to each other as well. Releasing someone from the debt they owe us because they hurt us so greatly is very Very hard. Paul holds up the mirror and we look in the mirror and we see that we are sinners. We are steeped in unforgiveness. Now the natural end result of sin and unforgiveness is disunity. Disunity. When we continually hurt each other and we continually hold those sins against each other, fellowship meal times are really empty. They are. And pretty soon, one church splits and another church dies because of the sin and unforgiveness that has created disunity. Truthfully, the Corinthian church, what they're going through in these first parts of the letter of 1 Corinthians is a blueprint for how a church dies. I've seen it. Many of you have seen it. Our church, Calvary Bible Church, was spiraling down this path. By the grace of God, that process stopped. But every church is just one little bit away from stepping on that slippery slope of destruction and crashing into disunity several months ago as we were going through 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 we spent a lot of time on the need for unity in the church i'm not going to regurgitate those sermons you don't want me to i don't have the time to but i'll merely comment on what jesus prayed in john 17 john 17 verses 20 to 23 jesus says in john 17 20 to 23 my prayer is not for them alone I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When a church seeks unity... The world sees that Jesus came from God and that he loves them and that he died for them. They see the gospel lived out through the unity of the church. But if a church is disunified, the gospel is denied and the people outside don't want to have anything to do with it. Every person who attends church will reach a point where they have to make the conscious decision to willingly choose to leave that church or stay. Because that church is made up of broken, sinful human people who hurt everyone. Every Something will happen that will cause them to want to ditch it all. It happens in churches, it happens in friendships, it happens in marriages. We naturally want to cut people off instead of working through issues. We have our little meetings together and we all get together and we vote someone off the island because they hurt us. And the person who was voted off the island kicks the dirt off their feet and yells over their shoulder, I didn't like you anyway. It's what happens in churches. There are times to leave a church. And I've talked with many of you who have gone through that because the church unfortunately has left true teaching. Or there's strong unrepentant sin in the leadership and they're not doing anything about it. And, and you've done your best to, to work through those issues but it's reached the point we have to leave. And that is sad, sad, sad. The point is we seek unity as much as you can. We look in the mirror and we see that we're sinners, steeped in unforgiveness, crashing on disunity. Why do we keep going down this path? Why do so many churches seem stuck in a self-sustaining grind of sin, unforgiveness, and disunity. Thank you for asking. It's because too often than not we have a reliance on unsaved wisdom. We have a reliance on unsaved wisdom. Listen to what Paul says in this passage, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 6. He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers? The Corinthians said, we have this disagreement. We need help. I need justification for what has done against me. You want innocence because you say you've done nothing wrong. So let us who have the Holy Spirit living in us, let us go and seek help from those who do not have the Holy Spirit, who are followers of Satan and who are doomed to hell because of their actions and choices in life. Let us go to them so they can tell us how to live. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And unfortunately, that's so often what we do. We don't actually say that in our minds. We don't actually say that in our words. But when we take disagreements and small issues to court, that's what we're doing. When, when we wonder what we're supposed to do in a situation, and we wonder what we're supposed to say in a situation, and we go and take advice from our unsaved family members and friends, that's what we're doing. Paul says two very interesting things. He says that we as Christians will judge the world at the end of time and that we as Christians will judge angels at the end of time. Paul, John writes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, he says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Somehow, at the last time, at the end of the age, God will use us, who are his followers, to judge non Christians and the fallen angels. I don't, under, I don't understand how it works, but that's what the Bible says. If we're equipped to judge those, things at the end of time Paul says that we are equipped to judge small issues among brothers and sisters in Christ when there are disagreements we are equipped to step in and say this is what the Bible says now let's follow it God has placed someone or several people in every congregation who has the wisdom to push us to Christ it might be the pastor might be the Sunday school teacher deacons it might be a good friend it might be your parents it might be your kids but God has placed someone in the congregation to help us in this path. We don't have to look beyond. Paul holds up the mirror, shows us who we are in a sin. He says that we are sinners, steep in unforgiveness, crashing on disunity, relying on unsaved wisdom. That's what the mirror says we look like. Now, it also shows us where we need to change. If this is who we are, if there are some areas in here that we look at and say, yes, I struggle with that. How do we need to change? All of the areas that said, the four main areas that Paul points out, can be boiled down to change them, can be boiled down to living two questions. Does this action that I am doing, or these words I am saying, do they lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ? And the second question is, does this action I am doing, does these words I am saying boost the reputation of Christ? If we honestly answered these questions and lived accordingly, that everything we did and said lifted up our brothers and sisters in Christ, and everything we did and said boosted the reputation of Christ, we would have an amazing life. And our church would be blossoming. What does that look like, though, practically? Well, if you have the four things of who we are written down, there are four ways we can change. Instead of being people of sin, we are to be people of repentance. We're to be people of repentance, we are to be pe- the people who willingly say, I have sinned, I want to do better. When we borrow DVDs from someone and we don't return them and we hold on to them for years, we return them and we apologize. So, know that I will be doing that today. When we have said something hurtful or we spread gossip, we acknowledge the hurt that we caused and we seek forgiveness. We don't hide behind a desire of innocence, of this fake persona that we are perfect people, but we own up when we've done something wrong. And we definitely do not sue because of perceived defamation. Please do not sue me when I come to you. How would our community change if we as Calvary Bible Church were known as people who repented? I've talked a lot about this concept in the past month. So I'm going to let it be, except for this final concept. When repentance always lifts up our brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever it's done, whenever we openly repent, it always lifts up our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it always boosts the reputation of Christ. When we are willing to say, this is who I am, I did wrong, and I want to do better. We are to be people of repentance. Instead of being steeped in unforgiveness, we are to deny our rights. Deny our rights. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, He says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. When faced by a brother and sister in Christ who has hurt us, we are to forgive, which means we don't hold the action against them. They don't have to pay the debt to us, as we said. Sometimes when weighing the consequences of their actions, we realize that it's better to deny our rights and not seek restitution. It's better to be cheated and wronged and have the reputation of Jesus Christ drugged through the mud and a brother and sister in Christ pushed down. We, we don't want that. We want to boost our brother and sister Christ. So sometimes it's best to deny our rights and say, you know, we're not gonna, we're gonna, we're not gonna seek that for the sake of Jesus Christ. We in America are enamored with the concept of rights. We are angry when our rights are denied. We seek legislation, we sue, we protest sometimes, and sometimes it's good to do that. But do we ever ask whether we should do it? I think about Paul. He was a Roman citizen, which brought a great deal of protection. He had a lot of latitude of what he could do before he was thrown into jail because he was a Roman citizen. And sometimes he used those rights and he declared himself a Roman citizen so he wouldn't be thrown into jail, so he wouldn't have hardships put on him. But sometimes he denied those rights and didn't say that he was a Roman citizen. And he was thrown into jail when he shouldn't have been, all because he wanted to share the gospel and this provided a greater chance for the gospel. He cared more about the gospel than he did about anything else, even his rights. I think about Jesus. God himself, living in the riches of heaven. And he gave out all those rights to come to earth and die for us. I appreciate a missionary to Indonesia named Mabel Williamson. She wrote a book in the 1970s called Have We No Rights? Excuse me. And in this book, she talks about the right to a missionary. The the, the call to a missionary is a call to give up one's rights. She says, of these rights that she has given up. The right to what I consider a normal standard of living. The right to the ordinary safeguards of good health. The right to regulate my private affairs as I wish. The right to privacy. The right to my own time. The right to a normal romance, if any. The right to a normal home life. The right to live with the people of my choice. The right to feel superior the right to run things, all these things that she has given up in order to share the gospel with people of Indonesia. And as she was reflecting all these rights that she was giving up, she thought about Jesus and she wrote a poem about him. She wrote, he he had no rights, no right to a soft bed and a well-laid table, no right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasure might be sought, no right to choose pleasant, congenial companions, those who could understand him and sympathize with him. No right to shrink away from filth and sin, to pull his garments closer around him and turn aside to walk a cleaner path. No right to be understood and appreciated. No, not by those upon whom he had poured out a double portion of his love. No right even never to be forsaken by his father, the one who meant more than all to him. His only right was silently to endure shame, spitting, blows, to take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins and anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I? A right to the comforts of life? No, but a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No, but a right to the security of being in his will. A right to love and sympathy from those around me? No, but a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I do myself. A right to be a leader among men? No, but the right to be led by the one to whom I've given my all. Led as a little child with its hand in the hand of its father. A right to a home and dear ones? No, not necessarily, but a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself? No, but oh, I have a right to Christ. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives, I will take. He, my only right. He, the one right before which all other rights fade into nothingness. I have a full right to him. Oh, may he have a full right to me. Sometimes, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the reputation of Christ and the advancement of the gospel, we must give up our rights. So, we are to be people of repentance. We're to give up our rights. We're to pursue unity. The, Paul has been pushing the Corinthians over and over again to back together after their rocky relationship. And we've talked about this unity before. I'm not going to talk about it again. If I was extremely evil, I thought about a way to wake you up at this point in time and and to put this home, and I was going to have you maybe link arms and sing kumbaya together. But I decided not to be that evil. When a church naturally practices repentance and it is known for giving up its rights for the sake of Jesus Christ, unity happens. It just naturally does. When I came here to Calvary Bible Church six and a half years ago, Calvary Bible Church was a disunified church. They were reaping the result of decades of bad choices, selfishness, and pride. But then we as a church started praying and some people started repenting and other people started giving up their rights. Now when people come, they start talking about how we feel like a family, how we love each other, and want to be around each other. At Ruth Ann's funeral, one of her family members who does not go to a church walked into ours. And he looked around and he said to me, This doesn't feel like a church. This feels like a home. And I looked, I heard it and thought, What an amazing thing to say. Because we are to be the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And where does a family meet but a home? Unified. We are to be people of repentance. We are to give up our rights. We're to pursue unity. Finally, instead of relying on unsaved wisdom, we are to understand God's perspective. We're to understand God's perspective. Paul writes in chapter six, verses nine to 11. Chapter six, nine to 11, he says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're gonna dive more into these verses next week, specifically as we spend a lot of time unpacking verse 11. But these verses tells us God's perspective on the world. And what is it? It says that he created us We know that the Bible says he created us to have a relationship with him. Through that relationship, we get certain blessings, such as love, hope, peace, beauty, comfort, endurance. Unfortunately, we we as humans have decided to turn away from God and do our own thing, following our own passions. And by doing that, we separate ourselves from all those blessings because we separate ourselves from God himself. In this verses, Paul outlines some prominent sins that the Corinthians and the Romans were indulging in. He said that these sins as well as others removed ourselves from God's blessings for eternity. Several weeks ago we discussed the list of sins that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we mentioned that the sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 were not just single instances. It wasn't that one person lied once that he's talking about. He's talking about someone who has continued in unrepentant action. These are people who say, I know what God says, but I refuse to change. This is just who I am. I'm just going to do it, and you can't stop me. God says that he will bring judgment on these people. He's not referring to losing salvation here. He's speaking of people who have not been saved and who have been living out their unsaved actions unrepentantly. The follower of Jesus Christ will not live in unrepentant sin, but will turn back to Jesus. The Corinthians were sexually immoral. They were idolaters. They were adulterers. They were homosexuals. They were thieves. They were drunkards. They were verbally abusive. They were swindlers. But in Christ, they were able to change from all those things they were and live in a way that showed the relationship they had with God. That's what happens when we're in Christ. He's able to change us from what we were To live differently, and He's able to give us wisdom how to live differently. God's perspective is if we need wisdom, let us seek it from those who have a relationship with Him, who have learned how to live differently, not from those who are doomed to an eternity apart from Him. Sometimes, when I have time on my hands, which isn't often, but as I'm reading through scriptures, And think about what would this person who's writing this letter, what would they say if they're writing to the American church? What would they write? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul, if he looked at the American church, he would be appalled and he would have a lot to say about us. And this is what he would say in addition to so many other things. He would lift up his mirror. He would show us what was wrong, who we are, and where we needed to change. And he would call us as the American church and as Calvary Bible Church, to repent, to deny our rights, to seek unity, and to understand God's perspective. Then, as we will talk about next week, he'll remind us of who we are in Christ. And I'm so looking forward to that message because it's one thing to have a doom and gloom message about all of our sin, but it's another thing to look and say, wow, look how God actually views us. What Christ, when he comes into our life, what that actually is and the change that happens, not because of us, but because of him, his amazing gift, and for his honor and his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God who looked at us in our sin, in our depravity, and wanted us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for seeing that we could not do anything to change ourselves, but you did it all by sending your son to die on the cross for us. Thank you for not making us to do something to earn that gift, but you did it all. And all we have to do is rest in you. To declare with our mouth that you are Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead. Lord, thank you for saving me, for saving us. And I ask that you would teach us how to live that salvation out to have the guts to look in the mirror every single day and realize who we are and to take the steps necessary to change. For, yes, for our sake, but Lord, for your reputation and the advancement of your kingdom. Work through us, Father. Make us usable. Thanks. Amen. Sing hymnals and stand and turn to number 428. 428, I need thee every hour.